Welcome, everybody, to this edition of the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame's Hall Call podcast. I am Will Driscoll, the executive director of the Hall of Fame, and it is my pleasure to bring Hall Call to you wherever you may be listening. We aim to highlight the individuals, topics, and events that make sports in Virginia so special, and today is no different. On today's episode, we feature a few emerging sports in Virginia and the man behind them. Where to begin with Bob Pizzini? The Wisconsin native served 26 years in the Navy prior to finding his way to Virginia Beach. Now he is the CEO of iFly, the indoor skydiving facility at the oceanfront, as well as a level four USA hockey coach aiming to increase hockey's presence in the area and beyond. And we're going to kind of talk about both of these today with Bob, who joins me in the studio. Bob, thanks for joining us today on the Hall Call podcast. Thanks, Will. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. We, we, uh, we appreciate the fact that you uh, took the time out of your schedule to come here. We were just talking. You have a very busy schedule. But let's start. You have a military background, but yes. you've always been involved in sports in some form or fashion from growing up in Kenosha, Wisconsin, correct? That's correct. Give us an idea of where that passion was formed. Uh, well, I think for me, hockey was an outlet. It was formed very early in my childhood. Uh, I grew up kind of playing pond hockey. Uh, people would build hockey rinks in their backyards. I remember the Hartleys who lived uh, just down the street on 2nd Avenue. And uh, usually it was cold enough and icy enough to where I could ice skate down the street from my house to their house, uh, skate on the rink until my mom was crazy mad because it was 11 p.m. and I, I wasn't home and I was 10 years old and uh, finally skate back home. And uh, so I just kind of grew up around that, that environment, but also all the other sports. I played football and baseball and tennis and basketball. Well, one of the projects that you're working on, I mentioned that you, you're the CEO of iFly, and we'll get to that and kind of how that sport's emerging and the growth that that sport has seen over, over the last five years, five, 10 years. But one of the projects you're currently working on is a new ice facility, ice skating, hockey ice skating facility here in Virginia Beach called the Warrior Ice Center. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So we currently skate uh, in Virginia Beach at a rink called Iceland Family Skating Center. Iceland has been an ice rink for about 32 years uh, based on the research that we've done. It was a roller rink before that and a grocery store before that. The summary of that is Iceland is, uh, it's old and it's tired and it was never designed to be a functional ice rink. And ice hockey and, and ice skating and ice sports have grown tremendously. Sled hockey, for example, our program. And so our facility is literally bursting at the seams and our facility cannot support the volume and the demand for ice sports in Virginia Beach. Now, this this facility, and, and really, I'll kind of take a step back here. The region and the state has always kind of had a hockey presence. And it, it, to the outsider, it doesn't seem like that. But the Admirals have had a presence here in Hampton Roads, a successful presence in Hampton Roads for almost 30 years. Richmond had the Renegades for many years. Roanoke has had one for almost 30 years. Um, and even with the Capitals now in D.C., they won the Stanley Cup, and that kind of filters down into northern Virginia. We even have a junior team here in Hampton Roads, the Hampton Roads Whalers, that are right. junior national champions. Is this facility looking to fill a void, or is it looking to create opportunity where there wasn't? It's not, on the surface, it's not as easy to sell as, say, basketball, baseball, or soccer. So kind of talk to that point. Sure. We're actually looking to do both. We're going to fill a void, and we're going to grow and expand um, based on the demand. So this new facility will have two sheets of ice. And if you look at uh, the way hockey and ice sports are growing around the country, uh, most facilities are being built with two sheets of ice. There's roughly 2,035 indoor ice rinks across the U.S., and that's roughly one sheet of ice for about every 147,000 in population. All that means is that uh, our community with 460,000, Virginia Beach uh, unto itself, 
is underserved. There are 30 ice rinks within a three-hour drive. There's, I believe, uh, 20, 18 or 20 of them are up in northern Virginia, and then um, 10 or so down in Raleigh-Durham. So hockey, and when you look at the organization, USA Hockey, the national governing body for the sport of hockey, the membership has grown steadily for the last 15 years. Most other sports, membership has been decreasing. But in hockey, it's been increasing. And when I say hockey, I, I include figure skating and ice sports. So, so with membership on the rise, with the sport becoming more accessible to everybody, and our, our theme is no matter what neighborhood you live in, no matter what school you go to, uh, no matter if your parents are military or deployed or, God forbid, have made the ultimate sacrifice, hockey is for everybody in Virginia Beach. What do you attribute that growth to? You mentioned that it's one of the sports that is growing when, you know, statistics, some recent statistics have shown that sports overall, particularly at the youth level, is decreasing. Yeah, it's incredible. As I uh, interact with, with parents and with players and, and people who are now MBAs or bankers who grew up playing hockey, they all attribute uh, their success off the ice to the discipline they learned on the ice. And I certainly experienced that myself. And so I think that uh, those who are paying attention are recognizing that. And, uh, and our large military presence here has a lot to do with it as well. 60% of our skaters at Iceland are either active duty, retired, veteran status like myself, or the children of, of military people. So we have this perfect blend of, of all these ingredients that make hockey uh, a huge, a huge sport in our area. Now, looking from the top to the bottom, you know, the 30,000 foot level, the NHL is expanding there. So they're now going to be above 30 teams. You mentioned kind of the per capita when it comes to population versus hockey rinks. What does a facility like this, as well as the other 30 rinks within the three hour radius, what does that do to support for the ECHLs, the juniors, the AHLs, all the way up to the NHL? Sure. Well, uh, and we've, we've visioned all that. So we will have a junior team uh, as soon as we open. And we will, we will be a more than suitable summer practice venue for any NHL, te- any NHL team. We have a relationship with the Boston Bruins Alumni Association already. Um, the organization, our, our current hockey organization in Virginia Beach is 100% foundation-based. And this is really an expansion. So it's 100% foundation-based, which is appealing for a lot of different reasons. But it's going to allow us to grow hockey um, across all, all aspects. For example, we can't host travel hockey here, regardless of the level of play. We can't host any tournaments here uh, because we just don't have the venue. Uh, we can't have a junior team at our rink because we don't have the venue. College hockey. ODU has had a program for quite a while. Regent, I'm an assistant coach out at Regent University. This is their second year of having a, a club program. But, um, you know, you have to start somewhere and grow. So all of these, and Regent sells about, last year they sold about 250 tickets per game. Uh, and, and all those people came to Iceland where there's not seating for 250 people. So the sport in our region has tremendous potential across all these different levels. That kind of goes to another level I didn't even mention in my last question, the NCAA. You know, is NCAA hockey growing at the Division One, Two, II, and Three levels? And is that something that's going to filter down to the state as well, that this facility could maybe find players for those teams? Certainly, that's a vision of ours as well. Um, hockey is solid at uh, Division One through three, and um, we think that within 10 years or so, it's a possibility to have that presence here as well. You mentioned the Boston Bruins alumni group. How did that relationship form, and, and who's kind of the driver behind that? And, you know, Boston to, to Virginia Beach, that's a 12-hour drive, it's, and it's not exactly accessible because of our airport. So how did that relationship come to be? Yeah, so it's a very unique relationship, really founded on uh, Navy Special Operators, um, the Navy Special Operators 
use hockey um, as a as a way to keep families together, as a way to kind of decompress from the challenges of military life. And people in the Boston area became aware of who we are and what we were doing, and they wanted to get involved and they wanted to help. And that evolved into what's now called the Warrior for Life Fund, uh, which uh, exists uh, to use hockey to, again, help military people deal with the challenges of military life to the point to where uh, the Warrior for Life Fund will be the owner and operator of the Warrior Ice Center. You talked about the Warrior for Life Fund and how it can be used, how hockey can be used to deal with long deployments and other combat-related challenges. What is that connection? Kind of give, kind of give the layman a little bit more information about how hockey can help with those challenges. Sure, I can tell you from my personal experience. Uh, when I came back from uh, extended combat deployment, um, I, I, I like everybody else. You have this hyper vigilance. You have this. Um, you know, you're extremely alert all the time. And that's not always good um, in just in, in general daily living, whether it's in, in your family or, or uh, just being in the community. But being on the ice is a great place to be hypervigilant. It's a great release. It's a great outlet. And it also, in my case, uh, gave me the opportunity to be on the ice with my son, who's a hockey player. Whether I was coaching his team or we were playing um, stick and puck or we're out in the driveway uh, shooting at the net. It was a good opportunity to release energy, and it's a good way to connect with each other. Well, um, if you zoom that out a little bit, uh, we have a lot of young ladies in hockey today. And so father-daughter, father-son, there's mothers who play hockey, there's mothers who coach, there's mothers who referee. So having this family activity on the ice kind of gives everybody something to coalesce around. It gives everybody something... Um, that they can do together, that they can share together, that they can expend energy. And when they drive home, uh, uh, on the way home from the rink, they say, wow, that was a lot of fun. You mentioned the female aspect. The U.S. women's hockey team at the top level is kind of like our U.S. women's soccer team at the top level. They, they are the premier team, really, when it comes to international success. Is there a market in Virginia for female hockey? And how many females are involved in hockey here locally and then throughout the state? So there's certainly a market now uh, uh, at our rink at Iceland. We play co-ed hockey. We don't have an exclusive girls team. There are exclusive girls teams just about in every other local market. For example, uh, we have a handful of girls now that are playing in North Carolina uh, that skated with us for the last six or seven years, and they found an all-girls team. Um, certainly in the North and at the university level, it's extremely prevalent. And again, we think there's tremendous potential to make that happen here as well. Now, the state of Virginia has quite a few top-notch facilities, including another one that's being built right now in Virginia Beach for sports, for, you know, uh, tournaments and court sports, indoor sports, things like that. How does the Warrior Ice Center help complement that, and, and how are they going to help kind of continue to build that brand? Sure. Well, within the Warrior Ice Center, we're building two sheets of ice. One sheet of ice, uh, as I mentioned earlier, will have seating for about 3,500. The other one will have seating for about 350. The 3,500-seat arena, what we call the showcase arena, uh, will have a, what we call a concrete floor so we can convert that and hold other events there. So we could hold a wrestling event there, again, with spectator seats for 3,500. We could hold martial arts events there. We can hold uh, some, of the, some, of the, some of the events that don't require a sports center-like venue. 
Okay, so so this is basically a facility that obviously its focus will be hockey, but it can be molded into something else. It's a multi-use facility. Yeah, multi-use. Uh, you, some of the other some of the other concepts that are out there are high school graduations and and other unique. Levels. That is multi-use. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the Warrior Ice Center, and I encourage everybody to go to VirginianPilot.com, Pilot Online, uh, to read more about it. It's a really unique partnership between Bob, his group, as well as the Boston Bruins alumni, and and it could be a really great resource for the city, for the state and beyond. But I kind of want to transition now to another sport that you're involved in, which is really off the beaten path. In fact, it's really not on a path at all. It's more in a tunnel, uh, indoor mm-hmm. skydiving. You've been the CEO at iFly. You said for five years now here in Virginia Beach, I told you it seems like it's been around now for 10 years. That's how successful it's been. Kind of talk about how you got involved with indoor skydiving initially and what drew you to that sport. Sure. So my last assignment uh, when I was on active duty was uh, I was responsible for the sustainment and advanced airborne training for about 1,200 EOD operators or explosive ordnance disposal technicians stationed here on the East Coast. So to facilitate that airborne training, we would travel to these indoor wind tunnels or these these, uh, vertical wind tunnels in different parts of the country and, and to do our training. While we were there, we would see uh, in addition to the military training, what I affectionately call mom, dad, and the kids, we'd see the 18-year-olds on a date. We would see the birthday parties and, and the other events. And so we saw the full business model, and we would always drive back to Virginia Beach. This is 2009 timeframe. We would always drive back to Virginia Beach and say, why isn't there one here? Why are all these units, the highest concentration of, of uh, airborne operators in the Navy, stationed in Virginia Beach, why are they traveling to all these different areas? Why isn't there one here? I got serious about that question one day, called the manufacturer of the equipment. They basically told me, get in line. There's a lot of interest in Virginia Beach. And I I didn't think anything of it. And they called me back three or four or five months later. And they said, hey, are you still interested? Line got shorter. Yeah. And I said, well, where am I in that line? And uh, they said, you can be at the front of it if you want. And uh, so that's when, um, you know, I got motivated, started losing sleep at night, as they say. And six years after that is when we opened. So so we train uh, professionals, and we are we are we're three things at I Fly Virginia Beach. We're amusement, so the tourists come and, and fly with us one time, and and they have a lifelong memory. And then we are recreation, so we have a membership program. People will come and fly with us every week or every couple of weeks, and and that's very similar to ice skating, for example. If you go ice skating one time on a Sunday afternoon, it's amusement. If you go every Sunday afternoon, it's recreation. And then we have a sport. And so the sport of indoor skydiving is the thing that's fairly new and exciting. It's about five years old on the international stage. It's been organized in the U.S. for three years through uh, U.S. Indoor Skydiving, which is an, the national governing body for the sport that we created here about three years ago. You just touched on all three facets of indoor skydiving. And you've said in the past that 30,000 people will come through the facility in a year. But kind of your your passion right now is really growing this sport the, on the national level and the international level. How has that begun to gain traction, both here in the U.S. and, and globally? Sure. So there are nine, it's either eight or nine air sports that are recognized internationally. And there's an organization called the Federation Aeronautique International, which governs these nine air sports. It's a European-based organization um, and its largest member is the United States Parachute Association with some 40,000 uh, members within USPA. At any rate, there's hot air ballooning, there's model airplane racing, there's um, um, uh, paragliders, there's hang gliding, there's parachuting, and now there's indoor skydiving. So, so this larger organization existed for quite a while, 
indoor skydiving was added as a sport uh, to that larger organization about five years ago. And then we formalized in the U.S., like I said, about two or three years ago. Now, here in Virginia Beach, you've actually hosted the last three U.S. Opens. So this is determining the U.S. national champion. Was that, How much of a push was that? Was that they looked at the facility, they wanted to do it, or how much work did you put into getting those here? So it's a, it's a full year's effort to plan and then to execute. So we, we hosted the first, the second, and the third. So th- uh, 2020 will be the fourth U.S. Open National Championship. We hosted the first three largely because we created the national governing body here. We had a lot of room to maneuver within all the other kind of rules and regulations around the sport. Um, So we hosted the first three. Huge undertaking. um, Learned a lot of lessons from year one to year three. And we're still seeking sponsorship. We're still seeking a Netflix or a Toyota or a Bose or a, a really large national sponsor. When we host the U.S. Open National Championship, we select the U.S. team. So because the, the European model through the FAI has been in existence for five years, every year, just like every other sport, there's either a World Cup or a World Championship. So when we host that U.S. National Championship, we are selecting the team that's going to go to either the World Cup or the World Championship based on even year, odd year. For example, last year was a World Championship held in, uh, or actually it was this year, earlier this year, World Championship held in in uh, Lille, France. So in the U.S. Open or in any competition, what kind of maneuvers are being judged? For, for the person who says, you know, I've seen the videos and I see people getting in there and it looks like they're floating, that's clearly not the maneuver that's being judged. So kind of what are the judges looking for during a competition like this? Sure. So there's a few things, and, and it's ironic. The uh, You know, I coach hockey and I, I make all these comparisons to ice skating uh, when it comes to indoor skydiving. So there's an individual category, freestyle, and so that individual will go in and do uh, required maneuvers and then optional maneuvers, and that, that individual is judged by freestyle judges, so very similar to uh, solo figure skating. And then there's what we call two-way or what would, what would, what would be called couples in figure skating. And in, in the two-way, it's the same thing. There's what's called a dive pool draw. So out of the 30 or so maneuvers that can be done by two people, uh, uh, flying against a clock as well, 10 or 12 of those maneuvers are drawn at random. They, they, get, they become aware of these maneuvers shortly before or the day before um, the first round. So they have uh, just a limited, limited amount of time to practice those particular maneuvers, and then they get in there and fly them once again against a clock. So you mentioned that creating the governing body has taken place here in Virginia Beach. Now there's obviously an international presence for indoor skydiving. What is the next step? Is, is the Olympics, is that in play? You know, the Olympics has really taken on the, uh, I wouldn't call it a burden, the, the mantle, I'd say, of adding in unique sports, sports that are outside of kind of the big, the big sports over the past, you know, kind of Olympiads, few Olympiads. Is indoor skydiving in that conversation? So it's in that conversation. It's, it's interesting you cued that up the way you did because uh, uh, France is hosting the 2024 Summer Games. And the, the French Parachuting Federation was making a big push uh, through the, the um, organizing committee, the Olympic organizing committee, to have indoor skydiving added. At the same time, we were competing against breakdancing, surfing, and um, what was, there was one other one that I can't recall right now, but... Um, Pickleball, maybe? Uh, <laughs> something like that? It was that. <laughs> something like that. Breakdancing, surfing, there was one other one. But, uh, but uh, we did not get selected in the final round. So now, really, all eyes are on Los Angeles in 2028. 
And is that a possible Olympic event? And the answer is yes, it's a possible Olympic event. It's a heavy lift to get from here to there, uh, but it's certainly on the radar screen of the U.S. Olympic Committee and the International Olympic Committee. From a national governing body for the sport, what work has to be done on your part to get it into, say, the USOC and the IOC's vision? Uh, well, they have to, uh, you know, a lot of steps along the way. The first one is they have to come out and observe it in, in a competitive nature and say, okay, we understand the sport. We understand that there's a competition. We understand the layout of the competition. And we understand that this sport takes place internationally. There's some very basic requirements by the IOC to add a sport. Um, and I'm, I'm not giving the exact numbers, but I'll give examples. For example, 70 countries must participate in the sport for it to be a qualifier. There must be a ratio of men to women that participate in the sport for it to be a qualifier. And so a lot of these things uh, are not, but, but like everything, there's exceptions and there's waivers and, and there's ways to become a sport without meeting um, a lot of the guidelines as they're written. So it really becomes a matter of uh, the sport's popularity currently, which is why sports come and go within the Olympics and uh, the growth potential for the sport. And I would have to say, to be quite honest, the commercial marketability of the sport, the, um, the, uh, you know, the advertising that can be associated with the sport. Well, judging by the last 30 minutes, it seems like you have a, quite a busy schedule coming up between iFly, indoor skydiving, as well as the, the Warrior Ice Center. But we wish you the best of luck on everything. And, and I really do recommend everybody go read about the Warrior Ice Center learn about what it's going to be, how it's going to affect the community, and how it's going to just increase the presence of hockey here in Virginia and beyond. And also go to iFly.com and learn more about what they're doing, not only from a indoor skydiving sports standpoint, but also the work they're doing in the community here in Virginia Beach. Bob, thank you so much for taking some time today to join us here on the Hall Call Podcast. We really appreciate it, and we wish you the best of luck with all of these projects. Thanks, Will. It's great to be here. Well, that is going to do it for this edition of the Hall Call Podcast. I'd like to thank my guest again, Bob Pizzini, for joining us today to talk about the growing sport of indoor skydiving as well as the growth of hockey in the Commonwealth. As always, if you like what you heard, please follow and like us on SoundCloud. You can also find the most up-to-date and archived episodes of Hall Call on our website, www.vasportshof.com. And don't forget to follow us on our social media platforms as well. Our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram handles are all at VA Sports HOF. I'd like to thank ESPN Radio 94.1 WVSPFM and our executive producer Thomas Simmons for their support. I am Will Driscoll, and thank you for listening to this edition of the Hall Call Podcast. Mm-hmm.